Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarowski show. As I speak, it's Friday, December 10th, 2021. The headline in Chicago Sun-Times, my beloved bright one, home delivered as always, says it all. It was all an act. And then there's a picture of Justice Smollett uh, and his, I don't know who they are, I guess, friends, family members uh, looking crestfallen uh, as they get the news uh, that uh, he was found guilty. Uh, And we've been talking about this all week, of course, on the show. And we've been talking about it, I think, for the last three years on and off, uh, including many conversations with my distinguished guests, who I will now ask to introduce herself so we can take the deep dive once again. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. I'm Ramana Hussein, and I'm an assistant metro editor at the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes. And as I always like to point out when she says that, she's also a columnist. I would love to read her column on Justice Smollett. Uh, and uh, all right, uh, Ramana, uh, you and I have been conversing about this all week, preparing for this show. Uh, <laughs> I think I sent you a text Tuesday <clears throat> along the lines of, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but whatever. I got a, my life's an open book anyway. Uh, I think I'm the only person in Chicago who is openly rooting for Justice Smollett uh, to be acquitted. And uh, then you pointed out, no, Ben, you know somebody else. <laughs> feels yeah. that way. Is that correct? Yes. I, I have two sisters, and I can tell you one of them was openly rooting for him to be acquitted. And she told me her reasoning was, not that she thought Jesse Smollett was necessarily innocent, but she was saying in, because it's so recent, um, the Kyle Rittenhouse case, she felt because Jesse Smollett had said that he was attacked by uh, Trump supporters, she wanted him to get acquitted. Um, she didn't, you know, she obviously said, you know, she doesn't know if he's innocent, but she just wanted all the Trumpsters to be all angry. And so she was like, you know, at least nobody died in his crime. You know, with Kyle Rittenhouse, there's like, Two people that died, one person that got shot, and 
you know, this white guy still gets away with it. So for her, it was more of she wanted to get all the uh, right wingers all riled up and she wanted them to get all mad and, you know, throw their hands up in the air and say stuff like what's wrong with the justice system when we know there's something wrong with the justice system. So for her, it was one of those things where it was a matter of principle about how screwed up our justice system is in terms of when it comes to race and class. And obviously with this case, it was a little different because the men testifying against um, Jesse Smollett were um, also, you know, black, but it was an, it's an interesting case. She just thought that because, you know, MAGA was introduced in this whole scenario, she would just wanted them. She just wanted that group, a segment of society to get all riled up. So that's what she was hoping for. So you weren't the only person. She was the other person in my life. Yeah, I, I, um, I understand where she's coming from. And uh, the Rittenhouse, I, I think instinctively uh, to Mayor Rahm uh, and the LaCroix um, McDonald video, this, I mean, it, the, the essential point is Rittenhouse, uh, I also put in this list, where you see gross injustices, people skating away free without any accountability or without any punishment, even though, I mean, murder? The guy killed two people, uh, Rittenhouse. And in my opinion, Rahm buried evidence of murder and they just skate free and then oh well let's let's let let let's make this guy guilty let's send this guy potentially to jail we'll talk about that you know what i'm saying i'm like wait a minute so like we're just going to uh, bypass punishment in these other cases and then heap everything on this one guy like he's literally the scapegoat Ramon. isn't that what a scapegoat is it's like literally the scapegoat you don't get the other people who are really responsible for evil stuff. So let's just go pick on this guy. That's kind of how uh, I view it. And uh, I'm with your sister on that one. Uh, well, let's get into the specifics of the case. Uh, Ramana, folks, you may not know this because I don't know if we said this last time. Uh, one of her uh, obligations as editor at the Sun-Times, she oversaw uh, the stories that the Sun-Times did. So if you think those the writing is really smooth and crisp and to the point, you got to send her a little note of thanks because she uh, made it sing. Um, so uh, why don't you uh, talk about uh, a, a, as best you can, whether you felt, aside from whether your sister or I wanted him to walk, whether you felt justice was served in this case, or, or let me rephrase it, whether the jury came to the right decision. Go ahead. Um, I think I, you know, I have to, first of all, I have to say I, I edited the majority of the stories involving Jesse Smollett and the trial because I was off for a few days. I'm trying to kill my vacation days before the end of the year so I don't lose them, but I did probably about 75% of them. Um, and I was going to say on the front cover, you didn't realize that, um, I can't believe that you didn't pick out Journey Smollett, who's like most famous Smollett um, family member. She's um, she's his sister who's like, was in love, most recently in Lovecraft County. And she was in Eve's Bayou. I remember her since she was a little girl. So when as soon as Jesse Smollett got um, arrested on this case, or said that he was a victim of hate crime. I'm like, I wonder if he's Journey Smollett's uh, sister, I mean, brother. So I, I recognized her. I think a lot of his siblings and mom and other um, family members were there. So she was somebody that jumped out. So I just want to point that out to you. Um, this case, I think, um, I think it, you know, I, I think the defense did a pretty good job and um, in arguing their case. I think what it came down to for the jurors about who they wanted to believe more Jesse Smollett or the two brothers who said that they were hired by Smollett to stage this attack. 
So I think it just came down to the testimony of these two guys, these three people, the brothers versus Jesse Smollett and who the jurors found more credible. And I think um, from what I understood, I wasn't editing the stories when uh, Jesse Smollett was on the stand, but I did read the stories. I seem, it seemed to, he seemed to do a pretty good job. I think some of his explanations, I think what probably got him in the end were a little far fetched about why certain things happened. Um, I think the fact that these two brothers, the, you know, the brother said that Jesse Smollett wanted this attack, this quote unquote attack captured on surveillance cameras. But I think he, it was apparently orchestrated in a way where it wasn't caught on camera. So, but you do see these two individuals who turned out to be the brothers, Osandario brothers walking around, around that time. And it was like at 2 AM. And I think um, special prosecutor Dan Webb pointed out that how would these guys, you know, the attackers know, or how would these two brothers know exactly where Jesse Smollett was going to be at 2 AM the January night? I think there was little, Little things like that, I think, what probably got the jury to believe the brothers over Jesse Smollett. But the fact that they deliberated over nine hours, I think, showed you that there was definitely a lot of discussion about whether Smollett was to believe to be believed. Because, I, you know, at a certain point, I don't know if you covered, you know, anything in the criminal justice system. The longer the jury's out, the better it is for the person on trial. So. I was like, oh, I don't know. He may get acquitted. I was thinking that um, yesterday. And then I kind of thought like at a certain point yesterday when it was like about three o'clock and they still hadn't reached a verdict. I was like, maybe they're going to come back on Friday, which would have been good for me because I'm off today. But um, <laughs> then, then around 420, we got word that there was a verdict and um, it was announced about some 40 minutes, 45 minutes later, the verdicts were announced and he was found guilty on five counts of um, disorderly conduct, and he was acquitted on the sixth count. And I know we were talking, you were talking a little bit about whether he's going to get jail time or not. I don't think he will because he doesn't have a criminal background and he these offenses are probationable. So I personally think that he's going to get probation if I was a betting person. So I don't think he's going to go to jail, but it definitely, this, this whole ordeal has definitely, definitely um, cost him his career. I mean, he was no Denzel Washington. Like, he wasn't, like, a name that all of us knew. But as soon as this case happened, we all knew who he was, and this is what he's known for. So he's kind of more infamous than famous right now. But I don't know. There's so many people, so many Hollywood stars, or so many, you know, I guess they're more A-listers. I don't know if he would be an A-lister, but there's so many people who kind of bounce back. So I don't know, maybe maybe he can redeem himself in some way. Um, I don't know. But they, he did talk a lot about how it hurt his career, um, this, this case specifically. So, you know, obviously this isn't done. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I hope we don't have to hear about Jesse Smollett again. And I'm like, oh, no, we'll hear about it because um, his attorneys are appealing the verdict and... Um, he still has to be sentenced. So it's going to be several months before he's sentenced. So this case isn't over yet. We're going to be hearing about it for a while, a little bit longer. And then there's the two outstanding matters of the lawsuit that it, first the city of Chicago filed against Justice Smollett to collect uh, the money that was spent investigating his alleged crime. Uh, and then uh, Justice Smollett filed a countersuit. So there's that uh, yeah. matter. 
which still has to be taken care of. Uh, this is a very, you raise a really interesting point, um, which I have been thinking about. Uh, you got me thinking. Uh, will he get a second chance? And let's, again, this is part of why I want him to quit. Let's just contrast him to the two examples I gave. One, Kyle Rittenhouse killed two people, ladies and gentlemen, and is being paraded <laughs> as a yes. hero around right-wing TV shows. That that I don't know if you saw that interview, Ramana. It was absolutely disgusting that he did. No, I, can't remember the I lady's don't want name. to. Oh, it, was, she, it just proved Darlene Glanton was so on target. Darlene Glanton, I wrote a column about her. Special shout-out to her. She wrote a story, I guess a guest column for the Sun-Times. She used to write for the Tribune. And she hit, in my opinion, hit the nail on the head with Rittenhouse that uh, essentially this was like punishing white people for taking a stand uh, with black people. Now they killed those two uh, protesters. I'll even use their terms. They accused, they killed those two uh, looters. I feel better, Mag. I call them looters. Uh, and so as a result, Jesse, uh, excuse me, Kyle Rittenhouse is kind of a hero. And that's what uh, the interviewer said. Oh, my God. These could you have met two worst people in America and you killed them? And, and Kyle's like, oh, well, you know, <laughs> just doing my thing. And uh, and then Mayor Rahm, he gets to be ambassador to Japan. He, he buried evidence of a murder. So I I view it that uh, that there it is unfair that uh, Jesse Smollett loses his career over faking uh, a police report. And these two guys get rewarded, particularly Kyle Rittenhouse. I, you know what, uh, Romano, though, America's known second chance. You know what I'm saying? I I could see him. What like Could you see a reality show or something like that for Jesse Smollett in the future? Yeah, I, I think I, I, I think he'll find something. I mean, the thing is, um, I was talking about how um, a lot of celebrities get second chances, but those are kind of A-listers. Um, you look at someone like Winona Ryder. It all depends on the person, the gender sometimes. You know, look at somebody like Winona Ryder. Remember when she was caught shoplifting? And for a while, she had no career. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, she's back again. She has like a comeback and she's on Stranger Things. And and so, you know, Hollywood and just show business is a little strange in some ways. But the thing with Jesse Smollett is that he was someone that nobody really knew who he was. Nobody heard of him. And then all of a sudden, this case happens and then everybody knows him. So like it, it wasn't like he was a known, well-known actor. So his case is a little different. You know, he wasn't an exactly an A-list star. He was someone that was on a television show that you probably would know who he was if you watched it, but he wasn't a household name. So now he's famous and this happens. I think if he like redeems himself in some sort of way, I think he can still have a career in some way, like you said. Um, I think uh, Gurney or Journey, however her name is spelled, I think she can definitely help him out. Um, she was last in Lovecraft count, Country or County. What was it called? I'm forgetting already. But she's she's been in a couple of like hip shows and, uh, you know, her family's in show business. I would think that he would be able to get something. Will he become like a, like a leading actor in movies? Probably not. But I think he can still get something. I don't know. I guess he was having like he was going to have a some sort of singing career and it kind of died because of this. But I'm thinking his singing career probably wasn't that lucrative to begin with because we never heard of the songs or anything like that. So I don't know. Like I said, show business is a really strange thing. You never know. People have comebacks. 
I don't know. It, it may be a while. I think I think what he'd probably have to do is kind of redeem himself and make himself a little more likable. I think a lot of people probably, I think, I know you, we were talking about the nature of the crime, but a lot of people are victims of hate crimes and victims of like, you know, homophobic attacks. So a lot of people feel like, you know, they're ta he's taking away the spotlight from the actual problem. And it is a problem that is happening. Um, you know, people are targeted because of who they are. So people felt like that was like a little unfair and they want him to kind of own up to it. So um, I think the Osendario brothers might kind of get a career out of this too. Um, you know, so <laughs> we'll have to see what happens. Um, but like I said, we're going to be looking at this case a little, you know, this case isn't over yet. We're still going to be talking about Jesse Smollett, which I'm sure you're excited about. <laughs> No one has enjoyed talking about Justice Smollett as much as I have, I, I must admit. I don't even pretend. Oh, I'm sick of it. That's something that uh, you're supposed to do as a column writer. You, you, you cannot admit that you enjoy talking about sleazy cases like this. Uh, Romano, you're supposed to. 101 is like, oh, this is just a waste of everybody's collective time. And then, of course, you indulge the public's fascination with it. Because if it's just a waste of time, how come so many people are interested in it? How come two newspapers, the Sun-Times and the Tribune, both put it on the front page if it's such a waste of everybody's time? Uh, and you mentioned uh, his sister. By the way, here's the problem. I just had, I have to say this before. This is the most frivolous part about our conversation, but let's indulge it anyway. What is the future of Justice Millett's career in Hollywood? Um, <laughs> I, I will say this. I just want to say something. Ramon and I could do all these Hollywood access shows as well as anyone in Hollywood right now. Oh, yeah, we totally could. It would be good. We could. Oh, my God. Come on. Uh, I just want to say this. The real issue in terms of resurrecting his career, and you talk about redeeming himself, he's got to deal with the fact that I think the overwhelming majority of people, whether they sympathize with him or not, whether they despise MAGA or not, whether like me or your sister or not, think he did it. So you got to deal with that fact that he's going around saying, I didn't do it. And exactly. everybody's like, Jesse, you did do it. Now own up to it. So at some point, it's I don't want to uh, inflate it because O.J. Simpson killed uh, two people. But it's there's some parallels in that uh, he's saying something that nobody believes. You follow what I mean? And so I think that will be um, that plays into it as well. Don't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And I told you, like, I don't know. He, I mean, I, I guess I don't blame him. But like during the trial, like, you know, he had his fist up in the air and. It's like, it's like that. I, I think people are sensing this cockiness. So I think he kind of has to humble himself a bit. I'm not saying he doesn't have to be proud of who he is or anything like that, but he kind of has to own up to his mistakes. So yeah, I agree with you. He kind of has to, that's what I think. I, I don't know. I could be wrong. He kind of has to. Ramana, just think about that. Just, just pause for a moment. Yeah. How do you, he has asserted boldly, confidently under oath yeah. that he did not do it. How do you then do a flip and say that's true? Yeah. That's true. You're right. It's a good point. Uh, I don't know. I just think I don't know. Maybe he never admits that. You know, or I don't know. You know, maybe he says he never. He can say that he never did it, but I think he just has to kind of go out of his way to show people that he's this trustworthy, you know, person and can act and like you know has talent. So I think he has to find some sort of way to show people that he is redeemable because, you know, you have to remember 
he got fired from his own show, the show that made him a star empire, like his own, like, you know, his own team fired him. Like the people that knew him fired him because of this whole ordeal. So I think he has to redeem himself in some way. And you made a good point. Is he going to really say that he lied under oath? No, but um, he's got to do something. I think, I don't know what it is. Ben, maybe you can maybe you can map it out. My advice to you, Justice Smollett, because if you're listening to this show, and I know you, uh, Romana's segment is your favorite segment on the Ben Jaroska show. My advice, because we talk about you so much, uh, yeah. <laughs> my advice uh, to you is before you do the interview with whoever you designate uh, as your official uh, sympathetic interviewer, Oprah, and you say, yeah, Oprah, uh, Robin Roberts, whoever. Yeah. Um, before you grant that interview, make sure the statute of limitations expired on lying under oath. Okay, just make sure. Make sure your lawyer checks it. Um, okay, lost in the shuffle, of course, is Kim Fox. And um, Kim Fox, when the Justice Smollett story, uh, Smollett Gate, as we called it, broke, our attention was on Kim Fox, uh, State's Attorney Kim Fox, because None of this would have happened had she handled the case correctly. And I'm getting upset with her all over again, Ramana, after we, this ordeal of this case, of this trial, this spectacle. Uh, just bring home the memory that uh, effectively Justice Smollett made this accusation. People believed him. Then uh, the police began to pick apart his story. It became obvious that at the very least, there were some inconsistencies, and then it became obvious, at least to the police, that he made the thing up. Uh, Kim Fox cut a deal with him, a plea. Uh, well, no, Kim Fox uh, and the state's attorney's office. Dropped the charges. Well, first they filed the charges, then, then they, they dropped, dropped the them. charges. Yeah, and they never did it. Uh, they never forced him to do what you generally do when you drop charges, force him to come before the judge and say, I'm sorry. Just think about how easier his life would be had he done that, by the way. Just for everybody, if they had just done the right thing. You know what I mean? It's Once again, if you do the right thing, sometimes it's better than if you try to lie and cheat your way out of it. Go ahead, Romano. Yeah, as a journalist, I think one of the most interesting parts of this case was the Kim Fox factor. Um, and this was obviously not something that was brought up during the trial, but the reason spe the special prosecutor was brought in is because he was brought in to examine the case after the charges were dropped and Dan Webb, re you know, Jesse Small was re-indicted and Dan Webb was um, hired to look into whether the state's attorney's office did anything wrong. The report he came out with is still under seal. It's not um, open to the public and, uh, you know, he said that there was no sort of like outlying problems, I guess, or outlying things that Kim Fox did wrong. But you have to question, I think this is why the case was interesting for a lot of journalists, I think, or a lot of people, like people felt like Kim Fox used, um, or at least Jesse Smollett used a lot of people in power that he knew to call Kim Fox to figure out what they what you can do. So it was the privilege of someone that is like, you know, somewhat famous used in the case that got a lot of people upset because, you know, there are, like I said, there are victims of hate crimes and it doesn't mean that people, you know, people who are, you know, in positions of power, they can be victims of hate crimes too. But I think a lot of people felt like Jesse Smollett used his privilege and people he knew to call Kim Fox. And a lot of people questioned like, how did Kim Fox let this 
like, why would you even drop the charges? And it was very, it, and a lot of people at 26 and Cal, I worked at the um, Layton criminal courthouse for about nine years. A lot of attorneys were saying that they've never seen anything like that. And so, you know, I know a lot of people said, well, you know, there's so many other big cases and, and, and I agree, there's a lot of more heinous cases. And we talked about the Kyle Rittenhouse case, but for me, it was like, just the, just what exactly happened. I think it's, it's, I think Kim Fox should have been questioned and, you know, I think it's okay for her to be criticized for the way she handled it. I think it's okay. I know a lot of people thought people were being unfair, but I think it wasn't the actual crime that people were upset about. It was basically the strings that were pulled to get him off in the first place. I think, I think these are good questions to ask and it was, you know, good to bring it up again in the stories because this is part of the reason why this story became bigger than what it was. I think if Jesse Smollett had lied about it, this, it definitely would have been like a case of interest, but there was just so many parts to it involving the state's attorney's office and, you know, things that were done in the state's attorney's office that made it a bigger deal than it should have been. Absolutely. Uh, I, I absolutely. And it, um, uh, you mentioned that uh, Dan Webb, uh, did a report he who also prosecuted the case so they had a special prosecutor assigned to handle this uh, as Ramana said he also did an investigation of Kim Fox and his report his investigation is so Chicago this is so Chicago this is what I'm saying like this is another reason I hope he would be acquitted so here's Chicago we we always make this big pretense that we're gonna get at the bottom of things and really his report is still not published. You can't see his report. I don't understand why that's the case. I I don't either. And uh, now, now I'm Mr. Foya guy. Uh, I did a comment. I don't know if you saw it, about how uh, Matt Topic, who's on the show last week, because I know he's a friend of yours, uh, the Foya lawyer, uh, and I filed a, a Foya request, seeing what evidence they had about Ram and Laquan McDonald. Uh, I, I'm going to bug Matt. If somebody has to have filed a Foya case already uh, to try to pry this. Uh, Dan Webb report out, but it's Ramada. There's so much about this story that irritates the hell out of me. The more <laughs> I think about it, uh, that that um, little factoid itself, because uh, you you could argue that the only thing of relevance uh, this is a celebrity story or in the gossip, and so you know he's a uh, he's a B list celebrity. His sister, I think his sister you mentioned her, she was the one who called Kim Fox. I think it was the sister that had the. I think I read that in either the Tribune or the Sun Times that the sister. Yeah, was it was the, the one sister Tina Chen. There was maybe one or two. Of Tina more Chen, people, right? yeah, she was the yeah. original. Well, Tina Chen called Kim Fox, I think, uh, to set up the phone call with the sister. Whatever, neither here nor there. The point is uh, the celebrity angles, the stuff that gets broadcast uh, on the front pages, and then like the relevant part, like what did the state's attorney know and when did she know it, is buried. So it's classic Chicago. Um, all right, I think we've exhausted Jesse Smollett. Uh, <laughs> we'll still talk about it, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I'm utterly obsessed with it, and I'll probably be writing a column and mentioning that uh, your sister and I are the uh, only two people in Chicago who are openly rooting for him to get acquitted. Uh, who knows? Maybe there's more people like us out there. All right, uh, let's uh, keep it in Chicago before we get to uh, the serious uh, matters of... Uh, Islamophobia uh, directed at uh, Elon Omar, which I've been really eager to talk to you about because it's very disturbing. But let's just uh, talk a little about Lori's text, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. 
Uh, the, just give a shout out to Gregory Pratt, the Chicago Tribune's A City Hall reporter, filed a FOIA request, spent two years battling, apparently. Of course, I'm just telling you what I read in the Tribune. Uh, the city of Chicago and their lawyers trying to keep everything secret. So, typical classic Chicago, don't want you to know. In this case, it's Lori Lightfoot's texts. And so, finally, I, I guess they released some of the texts. Uh, I read the article uh, in the Tribune. I don't. I haven't seen. I don't know if they put online, uh, Ramana, the actual text themselves. But shout out to Gregory Pratt. I have to tell you, I was all over the Smollett story yesterday. But you know, I was kind of glimpsing at stuff on Twitter just to see, like you know, if the verdict was near. And that was the story that everybody was talking about yesterday in Chicago. So Gregory Pratt's story was going viral yesterday in Chicago. Typical Ben. Didn't even know about it till I woke up this morning and I read the newspaper. <laughs> if you want to keep something from me, Ramana, just put it on Twitter. I don't know what's going on. Uh, I thought it was, uh, I, I'll just speak for myself. I thought it was a fascinating little glimpse of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And I know uh, there's a tendency for reporters in this town to go, oh, it's nothing new, probably because they're a little jealous that they didn't get the story. Uh, so, uh, you know, I give a shout out to Gregory Pratt having the enterprise to go and track it down and get it out there. Uh, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot that comes uh, is portrayed is sort of like the Mayor Lori Lightfoot that we've come to know. Um, she fights hard, Romana. She drops the f bomb. She uh, doesn't take disagreement easily. She's quick to counterpunch. Uh, in short, she's the kind of mayor that, in my opinion, most Chicagoans love. Uh, what's your general thoughts? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people obviously were um, not. You know, especially journalists, I don't think anybody was shocked at the content of the text. Like, you know, I think it's just like it's something that, you know, I think it's definitely an important story. And I think, you know, obviously the things that she's calling people definitely makes people raise their eyebrows. You know, she called one alderman a dumb, dumb. I think she did say dumb, dumb person of color. I don't know if it was the word dumb or dumb. And then she called um, Alderman Ray Lopez a peacock, and there were some other other uh, colorful terms that she used. I mean, one thing I have to say with technology, let's let's be fair. There's probably been leaders in the past who have said the same things about their you know fellow like colleagues in City Hall. Um, you know, they probably use the same kind of colorful colorful terms, but now with text and email. We can FOIA these things and see what people are really saying about their colleagues. So I think that, just to be fair, but I mean, nobody's, given Lori Lightfoot's temperament and what people know about her, I don't think anybody was shocked. I, th I think it, it was a definitely a talker of a story and everybody was just kind of like, you know, Lori Lightfoot seems to butt heads with almost everyone and has something to say about everyone and has an opinion about everyone. So I think people, people are still talking about it, I think. Um, and I think, I, I think, I mean, Hats off to Gregory Pratt for getting the story. I know people are saying that, okay, it doesn't really move the needle, but come on, it, you have to say it's, it's gotten people to talk. I mean, I, I, know you, I know you didn't know the story was out there, but, um, you know, it was on Twitter yesterday. Everybody was chatting, you know, chatting about it. And so I, taught, I saw people take excerpts from it. And then, you know, people are still talking about it today. So it's definitely a talker. And, you know, it's still, it's still, it's, it's a good story. That's a really good story, and it's an enterprise story. Uh, no, I give Gregory Pratt a lot of credit. It, I, listen, I, I've been around Chicago a long time, and I've seen so, down to the years when a, a reporter gets a scoop, 
there's just an instinctive reaction that other reporters have. Many cases, because they have to talk to an editor. Now, I'm going to throw you guys under the bus, you editors of the world, because editors will come to a reporter and they'll say, hey, how come you didn't have this story? And then, oh, that's nothing. I, I, if I've heard one reporter, I've heard a, t- a dozen reporters say, I had that story. I knew about that six months ago. And then they're desperately searching for their clip file to find anything that resembles a mention of the story. And it's because that editor, lazy editor who's never left the building once in his or her life, is getting on the reporter's case. I just threw all the editors of Chicago under a big bus, Ramana, and drove over it. Now, you've been on both sides of this one because you hey, were a reporter hey. for years. Yeah, I, I just and recently became editors. a full-time editor. No, I just recently became a full-time editor. But most of editors have been reporters. I have to tell you that. And not to sound like an old folky, but a lot of younger reporters don't want to get out. They can, they want to just talk to everybody via text or Twitter. <laughs> so I used to knock on doors. I remember the days when I used to knock on doors and go out. So you can complain about editors all you want. And I still complain about editors because, you know what, actually, when I, um, when I work with a lot of reporters, I knew what it felt like to be a reporter sitting there and waiting for your story to get posted and like just sitting there and like two hours later, your story's not posted. I remember how that felt. So I, because I still remember that, it's so clear. Whenever a reporter sends me a story, they want it posted ASAP, I do it. And you can ask the reporters that I deal with. I'm not that slow when it comes to that. So no, but I, I hear you. There are some editors who have forgotten what it's like to be a reporter. And I think both reporters and editors have important jobs. And sometimes, you know, editors do forget that, you know, reporters do put in a lot of time. And sometimes they do, you know, there's been times reporters have gotten stories and the editors are like, yeah, we're not interested in this. And then, you know, a competition does the same story and they're like, oh, we need this story. <laughs> and then the poor reporter's like, I gave you, I asked you if you wanted the story and you weren't interested. And, you know, because it's getting a lot of hits on the internet, they're like, okay, now we got to, I think we should do the story. So it's, it's, it's yeah. it can be frustrating <laughs> on both ends. On both ends, absolutely. And I know I'm no piece of work. I mean, I'm no walk in the park sometimes to deal with. Let's just put it that way. But it's but I, I, I do know that reporters have that that uh, instinct to undercut what their competition did. And I'm, I don't know. I just think, like, if the competition does a good job, you got to tip your hat to them. You know, it's like a basketball I, I game. I agree. Game's over. I agree. Shake the hand. You know, good game, you know. Uh, you don't want to be like Isaiah Thomas, reporters out there. Who, and I know most of you don't know what I'm talking about. He walked off the court in 1991 without shaking Michael Jordan's hand and congratulating him on a job well done. And uh, he's, he's widely despised in the city of Chicago uh, ever since. All right. Um, so let's move on and talk about uh, Ilan Omar and um, Lauren Boebert, the um, congresswoman from Colorado who loves uh, weaponry. Uh, a little too much, I think, and has been sending out abusive texts uh, regarding, uh, not text, tweets regarding um, uh, Representative Omar. Just such blatant anti-Muslim rhetoric, uh, Romana. And the Republicans just can't seem to bring themselves to uh, condemn it. Um, Talk about this a little bit. Yeah, so um, a couple of days ago, a video had resurfaced of Lauren Bobart. Is that how her name's pronounced? Lo Bobart. Um, she was um, in in front of her like supporters, and she was talking about an incident which Ilan um, Umar said that never happened. <laughs> anyway, she said that she was um, 
in the Capitol and she was going in an elevator and she saw some security official running into the elevator all sweaty and um and she was just like, why is this guy so like, you know, flustered and stuff? And then she looks to her right or left or whatever. And she sees Ilhan Umar in the um, elevator with her. And she said something like, well, at least she doesn't have a backpack or a bomb, like alluding to the fact that, you know, at least she doesn't have a bomb on her. And then she said that as soon and then as she was going up in the elevator, she told Ilhan Umar that she was part of the jihad squad. And uh, this video surfaced and... Bobart ended up apologizing for it. And the reason people said she apologized for it or said something about how she was wrong about saying that is because she's on all these, she's on a couple committees and she wanted to keep her position on these committees. And then Ilan Umar said, um, you know, she retorted and said that, you know, hey, this, first of all, this incident never happened. And she, I think she had gave a press conference last week about how ever since this video was surfaced, she's been getting a lot of hate mail. Um, and I think she had a news conference where she um, played a tape of someone calling her office. And, you know, they used the N-word. Um, Ilan Omar is of Somali descent and, you know, she's a black Muslim woman. And so this person is using the N-word, you know, threatening to kill her. And, you know, these are really serious, you know, threats. And um, it's, you know, Lauren Bobart, like, I don't even know who she, I mean, I don't think I've heard of her or maybe I did, but, um, you know, I probably didn't pay attention, but. It's like, you know, people, when she was making this, like, you know, talking about this incident on video, research, you know, when it surfaced, like, you know, you hear all her supporters kind of laughing at it. And it's not like, it's not even a funny joke, you know, and it's it's really disturbing, I think, in many ways. And, um, you know, people have been speaking out about it. And Lauren Bobart, I think, called Ilan, Ilan Omer, but didn't really apologize. I think that's what Ilan Omer said, or at least tweeted so I think this is something we're going to hear about for a long time, but it's just really sad how these elected elected officials can be Islamophobic and still have a position in of power, you know, but I'm not surprised. I mean, look who we had as president. So this isn't really surprising. I think we're going to be seeing, you know, more of this. It's more acceptable in a different in a way. I mean, there's definitely people speaking out about it, but we're going to have more leaders like this where they think it's okay to you know, denigrate someone because of their race or religion. So it's just disturbing in more yeah. ways than one. Uh, yeah. I think Omar hung up on her. They had the phone conversation recorded with Ilan Omar. Uh, Bobart was just digging in and being more insulting on the phone. And, and I don't blame her. At some point, if someone's just crossed the line, what's the point of continuing the conversation? you know, you know, it's just like, okay, you know, I'm just going to end this conversation because this is not productive in any way. Um, I just want to point out that that amounts to a false report that uh, Bobert uh, offered. And let's see if Dan Webb will prosecute her uh, like they prosecuted Justice Millett. You know, I mean, she made a false report claim that this woman was, uh, you know, scaring security because she had a backpack, totally made this thing up. I guess she thought it was funny. But I'm, as far as I know, I've not seen, uh, maybe I missed the story where Bobert said, oh, I was just joking. I I, I don't remember. I, I don't know if that. he said, I, I think she just said something like, oh, you know, I was wrong. I think, I think she, they were saying she was stepping back from the comments because it was mostly she was scared about losing her, you know, positions on the committees. It wasn't like because she was sincere about it or anything. I don't know if she, I don't know. I shouldn't say she apologized or said she was wrong, but she kind of was like taking some step back. I think she tweeted something. 
Okay, well, uh, uh, good that you said that. All right, Dan, I, I know Dan Webb is preparing to uh, file charges, but he'll hold back now. Um, I'm being very sarcastic. Uh, I, the Republican Party, how do I put this? The Republican Party, in my humble opinion, uh, has lost its mind. It's so filled with uh, hate and just open expressions of hate and violence toward uh, Omar uh, and AOC, uh, Representative Gasco Cortez. They're just openly hateful uh, in a way that I don't see coming from the Democrats. There's no parallel uh, expression from the Democrats. And you know, I, I struggle with this one, Romana, because the, there is a the number two right now party in America, probably to become the number one, if the polls are to believe in the next congressional election, they'll take control of the House, maybe the Senate, and Donald Trump's gearing up to run for president, is essentially controlled by people who feel free to threaten the lives of the opposition party. The level of violence and, and hostility uh, that's in the air from our mainstream parties is a level that I've never witnessed. You know, I know people on the fringes uh, have expressed a, a, a violent uh, attitudes down for, yes, obviously the American Nazi party or the KKK, but they were always on the fringes. You know what I'm saying? This is, the number two party in Congress, soon to be, if the polls are to believe, the number one. I I don't really know what to do. I was having this conversation yesterday with uh, uh, Achio Bejas. I urge everybody to check out that interview. And what what can what can Democrats do? I I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like just I I believe you have to raise these matters to the public's attention in the hope that the proverbial swing voter. Uh, in Michigan or Wisconsin or suburban Chicago who might vote Democrat will realize how um, how dangerous it would be to reward the Republicans for this hateful rhetoric. Your thoughts on this? No, I agree. But I think the sad thing is I think a lot of people embrace this hateful rhetoric. Like it empowers them in some sort of way. I mean, you would think that these individuals would be shunned as soon as they said stuff like that. But I think things like Islamophobia and has been embraced for so long where it's okay. And, you know, they see someone of Ilan Omar as someone who's the other, someone who's not American. And, you know, that's, that's what they use to kind of fuel their rhetoric. And so I, I, I don't know, I think it's going to, we're going to see more of this before it's over. And I just feel like for some people, they don't. And then there are some people who don't care. They're like, you know, they're they're Republicans and they're like, they'll say, well, I don't hate people for that. But, you know, they're willing to overlook that sort of talk. I mean, I've seen, we saw that with Donald Trump. There are a lot of people who, you know, a lot of a lot of I always hear this amongst a lot of white people. They're like, well, you know, that person's not really racist, you know, but they voted for Donald Trump. But that means they're willing to overlook all the racist things he said, because they can do that. They're in that, you know, they're, they're privileged enough to not worry about things that are said about certain groups and it's not their group. So it's okay. 
And I don't think a lot of um, people who are in position or, you know, people of color can say the same thing about the other group. And I don't think anybody would, but, you know, people would say stuff about Trump supporters. They're, you know, Hillary Clinton said that they're deplorables and everybody was like, oh, you can't say that. But meanwhile, these elected officials can use these slurs against um, ethnic and religious minorities and everybody's okay with it. But we have to be gentle when it comes to people who are, you know, racist and um, ignorant, then we have to like, we have to be really gentle and understand where they're coming from and understand that, you know, people of color have taken their jobs and they feel neglected and, oh, leave them alone. You know, like we have to be sensitive. So I think, I, I still think in the mainstream America, it's like, it's that mindset, you know, even amongst a lot of people who claim to be liberal, like they still, I think psychologically, there is this, they look at someone like Ilan Homer who's wearing a hijab who is Muslim and they think of her as the other. So it's okay to say that, you know, to someone who looks like that. But whereas if you, you know, criticize, uh, you know, a white person wearing a John Deere hat who's saying racist things saying, Oh, let's try to understand him and where he's coming from. So I don't know. That's a kind of, as, as someone who's like a Muslim and person of color, I just kind of see that. And I've, I've, I've kind of seen that on the left too. Like people saying, Oh, leave those Trump supporters alone. You have to understand them. And, but it's like, meanwhile, these people, these, 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 these elected officials are saying things and they keep getting in higher, higher positions of power. It's a little scary to me personally. Yeah, no, I, uh, I get a lot of the, uh, <laughs> I was laughing when you said that because I've had a lot of guests on the far, uh, I, my show goes far left, as you know. Yeah, and, I know that. Uh, they chastise me for, for shaming uh, Trump voters. They go, Ben, stop shaming them. I'm always, no matter who I'm getting, I get in trouble for shaming black voters in Chicago for voting for Rahm Emanuel. I get in trouble for shaming Trump voters in Wisconsin. For voting. So no matter what, don't shame the voters, Ben. The voters are always right. Oh yeah. They elect, they reelected Rahm. Okay. Just throw that out there as exhibit A and voters not knowing what they're doing. Um, I want to give a shout out before we leave this uh, to somebody. And it's, it may surprise you. She's a, uh, conservative columnist, and I never met her, I don't know, I just read her column in The Bright One, and uh, in the, back in the days, I was, ah, oh, this lady, this, well, is conservative, S.E. Cup, but man, I gotta give her credit, she's been, she's been coming at the Trumpsters, and she hasn't, you know what I mean, like, her politics would best be served, uh, more or less, her conservative politics on, on the environment or what have you, would best be served by a Republican administration, but uh, I don't know if you read her uh, Romana, she is in the Sun Times, uh, but she's just been consistently uh, critical of MAGA on these points and um, calling them out for the the things that they uh, have said about uh, AOC and uh, Representative Omar. So anyway, just want to give a shout out to her. It's 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 a little encouraging when I see someone from the Republican side of the aisle, you know what I mean, take these basic stands. Oh, I, I know, I know, I know you love Essie Cup, so I know you're like an avid fan, so I'm not surprised. Let me just say this. I, I, I do, uh, I am an avid fan of these particular columns. We don't always see eye to eye and everything, but yes, I, I, I think that's fair to say. I am a fan of Essie. All right, I'll just get it out there and say I am. Um, <laughs> uh, you're going to get me an Essie Cup t-shirt. I know that's coming. Oh, for, yeah. Uh, for the uh, holidays. Our holidays, yeah, happy Hanukkah. Well, Hanukkah's passed, but for Christmas, a late Christmas present. All right. Um, 
Romana's recommendation, what are you offering up for us uh, to be watching uh, in the coming days? Well, I know we talked a little bit about this, but I started the Get Back documentary um, by it's Peter Jackson, right? Um, a couple of weeks ago, and I only watched an hour. Um, and as I explained to you, it's only because I'm watching it with my husband, Mick, your friend, who doesn't watch television or anything on the weekdays. And I've just been busy the last couple weekends. So we've only watched an hour so far. And um, I like it, but I'm a huge Beatles fan. I think if you're just a casual fan or you don't like the Beatles that much, you might not be that interested because interested, it's a bunch. It's the Beatles just sitting around talking and, you know, about their record and coming up with songs and the music. But if you really like the Beatles, you'll enjoy it because the footage is pretty cool. And so far, I've only watched an hour. But what I've gleaned from it is that Paul McCartney was kind of the leader towards the end. I always thought it was like Paul and John like fighting, but John Lennon seems kind of bored and tired. And, uh, you know, a lot of people said Yoko Ono was like this big, you know, there was like the biggest fallacy that I never believed in the first place is the one who broke up the Beatles, but Yoko Ono was sitting in on the sessions and she's really not doing anything or saying much. She was like sewing in one part and just kind of quiet, kind of just hanging out just watching the process as it went on. The one thing that made me laugh is George Harrison's friends who were um, wannabe Indian spiritual people sitting in the corners. Um, that made, that cracked me up because as an Indian person, I, I'm not, I'm Muslim, but a lot of Indian people who are Hindu because there's a lot of white Westerners who love to go to India to gather spiritual knowledge the Beatles included I was telling Mick the other day the Beatles are the only ones who I kind of give a pass to but we do a lot of Indian people do laugh at the white people who go to India to gather some sort of spiritual connectionist because it's usually very superficial in a way they want to wear the garb and like say all this stuff but they don't really get it it's it's a very funny thing so that that made me laugh I don't know if a lot of people caught that but George Harrison's friends who came in they made me laugh and, but I, I like I like the documentary so far. I know you finished it, and I read your column, and I thought it was really cool. I'm waiting for um, God. Why am I forgetting his name? I'm waiting for uh, Billy Preston to come in to change the game. And a lot of people are, are you know I know you were you're the first one that wrote that. But after you wrote that column, I saw a lot of people pointing out that this is why it's important to have fresh blood and different perspectives. You know, when it comes to the workplace or anything like that, because this guy came in and shook everything up and really was a game changer. So I, I'm looking forward to watching the rest of the, and you know, Neil Steinberg, I, Neil Steinberg, I give a shout out to him. He has a column in today's paper about the documentary and he really liked it. I sent him a message this morning and he said he always took the Beatles for granted and he seemed to zip through it pretty quickly. And Terry Hemmert, who was on XRT watched most of it. She only has an hour left and he was shocked that she didn't finish it because she's one of the Hugest Beatles, Beatles fans in the city, but I liked that he gave the Beatles a shout out, and I still am very biased. The Beatles were the first band that I liked as a kid because I saw them, the cartoon. So I'm gonna. The Beatles are always gonna be my favorite band of all time. So I'll do anything Beatles. So I'm looking forward to watching the rest of it. I know you're gonna watch West Side Story because you're a fan. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let me just uh, address a couple of things that you said and get this out there. Number one, this is an appeal to my dear friend, Mick Dunkey, uh, who I love and uh, immensely. 
And I did a lot of great work, in my humble opinion, with Mick. So we were kind of always teased. We always had this joke like we were Lennon McCartney when we were working together. And then who was Lennon and who was McCartney? Uh, and um, But that is the most ridiculous thing, Mick. You know, I love you, but your viewing habits, I just, you're, I'm sorry. That is the most ridiculous. Why? This, this documentary is meant to be watched like in big gulps because that's, it's long and painful, but it evolves. If you spend one week, watch a half hour and then come back, no, it's not, you're not supposed to watch it. You're supposed to absorb it. And then if you really are a Beatle fanatic, you watch it again. Now, I'm not that much of a, a Beatle fanatic that I'm ready to watch it again, although I probably will. And now I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Romana has a friend from high school and grammar school who's a Beatle expert, not just a fan like the two of us, but she's a Beatle expert. And thanks, Romana. I'm going to reach out to her. She's a professor. She wrote a book about the Beatles. And we're going to do a whole special uh, segment on the show. Romana, me, and her friend, uh, whose name is escaping right now. I humbly apologize. Um, and uh, so we'll take the deep dive. So, Romana, I'm just going to say, as preparation for that show, you're just going to have to watch this one on your own because you got the, the, um, the, the two uh, friends of uh, George Harrison who sit in the corner with their legs crossed, they're bounced. Once they, once Billy Preston comes in and when they're getting serious, see ya. And, uh, but there is one moment you, and, and you, I don't know if you got to it yet. You talk about Indians making fun of white people. The Beatles were making fun of white people who do that. There's a moment where they reflect on oh, their yeah. visit to India. Did oh, you see yeah. that one? That, no, but I know. Well, in, I don't in, know the, in the documentary, they talk about their trip to India, and John is mocking it, uh, and Paul is mocking it, and George takes it serious. Yeah, um, yeah. He did take it seriously. I don't want to give it away. Because the great no, no, no. Change, well, but. I don't know if you knew. So the Maharishi was a big fraud, and a lot of these, uh, you know, these a lot of these spiritual, you know, people in India, Now, I'm not saying everyone, because there's a lot of people who are really good spiritual leaders, but the ones who are con men, they know that white people are into this stuff. So there was a time where there was a lot of con men who would be like, oh, they're really into this Indian spirituality. So the Maharishi was a con man. I don't know if you knew that Sexy Sadie was about him. That's that's okay. well, about no, the Maharishi. Uh, yes. Yeah, and John uh, and George Harris, George, yeah, George Harrison was actually um, offended by that song because they wanted to write about the Maharishi. And when they found out that, I think the Maharishi was telling them, you know, they shouldn't be doing this and they shouldn't be doing that. But I think he was sleeping with one of the actresses that were, were there. And then I think the Beatles left the ashram. And when John Lennon, you know, when Maharishi is like, "Why are you guys leaving?" Because you know he was getting publicity because of the Beatles. And then John Lennon told him, you're the cosmic one. You should know. Yeah. That's a very famous <laughs> incident. But anyway. No, John so that's Lennon is a very cynical guy about the Maharishi. And uh, I, I'll, I'll, um, uh, I'll hold off on the, the deeper dive in this one because you have to see it to, for, for us to really appreciate it. I will give well, a shout out. It might, it, might be, it might be 2022 by the time I finish it, but we'll see. <laughs> no, yeah, you got to have to break off and do it because this movie's too long to watch in segments. All right, uh, we've run out of time. Yes, I will be watching West Side Story. Yes, I'm a shameless baby boomer uh, who uh, loves West Side Story. I've seen the original at least 50,000 times. I had sworn it off, but everybody's been raving about Steven Spielberg's version. 
I'm a huge Stephen Sondheim fan. He's the one who wrote the lyrics uh, to West Side Story. Leonard Bernstein wrote the music. Uh, Stephen Sondheim died uh, a couple of weeks ago. We did a tribute show to him. And uh, so, yeah, uh, Romano, what can I say? I'm <laughs> a little embarrassed how much I love West Side Story, and uh, I will be watching it. Uh, all right, Romano, it's been a blast talking to you. And um, so we're going, I'm going to dutifully set up the interview, uh, the, the Beatles special. So I guess this is my way of saying to you, you got some homework to do. You got to watch that Beatles uh, documentary, whether Mick is in it for the long haul or not. You got to watch it within the next two weeks. All right. Will do. All right. Very good. That's the great Romana Hussein. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.